Would you take a Bible, please, and turn to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 5. If you are just learning to find your way around the New Testament, that is the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I always like to... uh, make certain that people find these texts. We have people here who have no religious background at all, who are totally unfamiliar with the Bible, and we like to have them find these places so they can follow along with us. I'll never forget years ago when I was working with students, I was in a fraternity Bible study and requested the group to turn to the book of Romans. And there was one young man who flipped frantically back and forth through the New Testament. And finally he said, where in the bleep bleep is Romans? (laughs) And uh, after we all recovered, uh, picked ourselves up off the floor and and, uh, we could help him find the book of Romans. It came home to me that there really are people who do not know their way around the Bible. And uh, if that's true of you, we welcome you here, and we want to help you uh, learn from this book. I'd like to begin reading with verse 21, Mark 5:21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him. While he was by the lake, one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. This is one of those stories uh, that all of the gospel writers refer to. Scholars call this a triple tradition. Each writer has his own vantage point. Matthew's writing from the standpoint of uh, this event occurring in his house. Peter, whose scribe was Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, writes from the standpoint of an insider, as we'll see in a moment. Luke, who was a medical doctor, writes from the standpoint of a physician. He has his own uh, perspective on this on this uh, miracle. Each one looking at things from from a different point of view. Matthew tells us that this particular event happened in his house. Matthew, you know, is a tax collector, which made him the most unpopular man in town. No one wanted to be around Matthew, and he had his own group of crazy friends that he invited to a party. Uh, Jesus attended, and uh, it was while he was eating with these publicans and uh, sinners that the Pharisees leveled the charge against him that you eat with publicans and sinners, and he said, you're absolutely right. It's that kind of folks that I came to be with because uh, a physician needs to be with sick people. That's where you would expect to find a physician. I was in a physician's office uh, a couple of weeks ago and looked around the room, and and I'm telling you, we were a pretty sick-looking crew. People looked weak and wan, and they were coughing, and it occurred to me that uh, my friend Fred, who is the physician, spends an awful lot of his time with uh, us sick people. That's what you would expect, and that's where Jesus, uh, that's where he put in his time. That's why they criticized him. Why are you spending your time with people like this? Jesus said, these are the people I came 
to save and to heal. Now, evidently, Matthew's house was right on the lake because Mark tells us that this occurred by the, the seashore. And uh, right in the middle of this conversation about a physician, uh, his ministry as the great physician, Jairus turned up and begged Jesus to come with him. Now, it's unusual that Jairus would make this appeal because Jairus was on the opposite side of the fence from Jesus. Jairus uh, was a ruler of the synagogue, we're told, which meant he was the leading layman. There were normally eight elders, or sometimes 12 elders, and then a chief elder in the synagogue, and the chief elder was called the ruler. And he normally was a very prominent man in in the community. He was a leading layman. He would be somewhat like the chairman of uh, our board of elders, like our own Hardin Young, someone who represents the layman and gives leadership to the uh, congregation. Uh, You would not expect him to even want to talk to Jesus because Jesus had uh, deeply offended the religious establishment. He lined up all their sacred cows and shot them through with one bullet. And uh, he was not being asked back into the synagogue to speak anymore. So you would not think that this, this, uh, this man would have any interest in talking to Jesus, but he was desperate. He was desperate. As C.S. Lewis puts it, God speaks to us, whispers to us in our joy, and shouts to us in our pain. And uh, there's probably nothing more painful than uh, being the parent of a of a desperately sick or terminally ch- a sick child. Uh, I see lots of uh, heads nodding, and you understand. We, those of us who are parents have gone through this sort of thing time and time again. You have either, uh, you've been standing by the bed of a terribly sick child, and you felt that, that awful fear, ice, cold fear that grips your heart. And some of you have lost uh, children. And uh, there's nothing like that hurt to turn our hearts uh, to the Lord. Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, Eyes that the preacher could not school by wayside graves are raised. And lips say, God be pitiful, who ne'er said, God be praised. There's something about tragedy and and sorrow that uh, draws us uh, to the Lord. And that's what happened to Jairus. He he was desperate. He'd come to the end of his, of his resources. Matthew tells us that he was already aware that his child was terminal. There was really no, uh, no hope for. But he felt perhaps uh, Jesus could, uh, could do something. And so our Lord responded immediately. He went off with him. This, is, uh, this was an emergency. Uh, Tempest was fidgeting. Uh, the time was of the essence. He had to, to move quickly in order to meet the, uh, the need of this desperate father. If this happened today, there would be a motorcade with a uh, police escort and, and uh, sirens uh, wailing and red lights flashing, and, and our Lord went off quickly with, with uh, Jairus. He's followed by an enormous crowd. Mark tells us in the next verse that the crowd pressed in against him. The word that that Mark uses suggests uh, almost uh, uh, congestion to the point of suffocation. He could hardly move. He's being jostled and carried along by this, uh, by this crowd. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. 
She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Uh, That's a verse that Dr. Luke leaves out of his account. (laughs) He does, actually. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. And immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet. And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace, or literally into peace, and be freed from your your suffering. Uh, This woman had been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She not only had the discomfort and shame of her hemorrhage, she was also considered unclean by the Jews. There is some, some possibility that she wasn't a Jewess. She may have been a Gentile, but in any case, in a Jewish society, she would not have been well received. She couldn't go to the synagogue. She was isolated, <clears throat> shut off from the help and care and comfort of, of God's people. There's a long-standing tradition that this particular woman came from Caesarea Philippi. If you look at a map of uh, Israel today, there's a little finger that sticks up to the north into Lebanon. It's called Matula, which is the Hebrew word for finger. And right at the tip of that, or just halfway down that uh, little narrow neck of, of land, is Caesarea Philippi, or Banyas, as it's called today. That, uh, that territory then belonged to the Greeks, and it was pagan. As a matter of fact, Banyas is a corruption, an Arabic corruption of the word Pan. They worship Pan up there, the Greek deity. And uh, there's every chance that this woman was not uh, not a Jewess, probably not a religious woman at all. She seems to have had a mixture of, of uh, superstition and magic and a little bit of religion all, uh, all mixed uh, together. And she had come down to Galilee to see Jesus. I don't know how she heard about him. Perhaps she had heard him teach at some point or she'd been told of the help that he gave to people, or perhaps she had uh, come down to hear him, and she stood on the outskirts of the crowd and listened to him as she as he talked, and she saw him touch and heal people, but she, she, she was desperate. She wanted help. She was another one who didn't know much about Jesus. She just knew that he could do something for her. She wasn't even sure what it was. She just uh, knew that he was a, a source of, of help. So uh, she she couldn't uh, talk to him face to face. She knew that 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 wouldn't be acceptable, or she thought it wouldn't be, because she knew she was unclean. And so she began to worm her way through this crowd. Now you have to you have to look at this the way the Mar- uh, way Mark describes it for us. The crowd was so great they were pressing in on every side, so that Jesus could hardly move. And uh, she had to work her way through the crowd. Everyone she touched would be unclean, and they'd have to go to the uh, to the temple for for purification but she finally made her way through the crowd and 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 reached out and and touched the hem of his garment now uh, jewish men in those days wore long capes over the top of their short tunics 
and they wore uh, tassels at the bottom, four tassels, actually two down, and then they took the long end of their tunic and threw it over their shoulders so the two hung down their back. The tassels were to remind Jewish men uh, of, the, of, the, of God's word, of the law and the need to, to obey. It was just a memory device. And uh, so this is probably, it was probably one of these tassels that she reached out and, and touched. And you, you can see how far afield her thinking is. She thought there was, there may be some power in his garment. She didn't understand much about his person. She hadn't listened to him enough to know who he was. She just knew he could do something for her. He had some magic to impart. And so she reached out, perhaps uh, very tentatively, and, and touched one of those tassels, and immediately the hemorrhage uh, stopped, the flow of blood ceased, and she knew in herself that she was healed immediately. And then she shrank back into the crowd. And Jesus stopped and began to look around in all directions, and he said, who touched me? Who touched me? And the disciples that were standing right next to him said, everybody's touching you. What do you mean who touched you? There are people on all sides. You're being touched every every second or two. You know, there's something different about this, this touch. And he turned around and looked through the crowd because uh, as far as the Lord's concerned, there are no crowds. Everybody is an individual. He knows every one of us. And he, and he saw her face in the crowd. I'm sure health was beginning to bloom in her in her face, and he he beckoned her to him, and she came and fell down at his feet and poured her heart out to him. She told him everything about her life. She told him all of the frustrations of living with this terrible sickness. She told uh, of her uh, the loss of all of her uh, her savings as a result of going from one physician to another, and physicians in those days did not have the means to to heal that they do today, and though they may have been very diligent, she has spent her money for nothing. She, she had nothing to show for her investment. She was ostracized by her family. If she'd ever had a family, she probably had no husband at this point. No one cared about her. She just poured her whole heart out to Jesus. And uh, he looked at her, and, and he said, Daughter, Now, he, he, he didn't ever say that to any other woman in the New Testament. That's the only occurrence of that, uh, uh, of that particular word. He said to her, daughter, in other words, child, child of mine, go into peace. Your faith has made you whole. You see, it wasn't, it wasn't the magic of his garment. We don't need the shroud of, of terrain, you know, to touch, to work the miracles, it, 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 work a miracle. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't the garment. It was, it was the power of the Father flowing through the Son to heal. That's why Jesus felt something happening. I don't know what he felt, but he sensed that the power of God had flowed through him into this woman. Remember, he said, I don't do anything by myself. I only do what I see the Father doing. He always acted in dependence upon God. Is always the Father acting through him. What we see is the loving touch of the Father. We see the heart of the Father. And we see the loving heart of the Son. See, he accepted her as, as his child. I'll tell you what struck me about this story as I read through it this last, this last week. I had a very, very vivid impression of the entire universe focusing upon this woman. 
you have to understand the, the situation. You know, the, it was of the utmost importance that they get to Jairus' home on time. This was an emergency, and they're rushing off. And it's as though Jesus said, whoa, stop, wait a minute, hold everything. And every angel and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all the saints in heaven were focused on this, uh, on this one desperately sick woman. Why? Because she had a little bit of faith. She had a lot of things uh, wrong. She didn't understand everything. If you had asked her what she believed about Jesus, she probably would have even made some statements that we would consider heretical today. She, she didn't have it all together. Uh, her thinking was a mix of pagan thinking and magic and a little bit of truth and sort of a conglomeration of ideas, some of which we, we would reject as as being right about our Lord, but what Jesus saw was that little bit of faith she had. It's all it took. It just seems to me that, that that's what get, gets God's attention. When we exercise a little bit of faith, the whole universe is focused on us. As Hebrews puts it, without faith it's impossible to please God because those who have faith believe that God is and that he's a rewarder of those that desperately seek him. That's all she, she was trying to do. She was desperately seeking him. She believed that he could help her. She didn't even know how, but she had a little bit of faith. And heaven and earth were focused on her at that, at that moment. She was the most important being on the face of the earth. And, and our Lord said, daughter, that... Faith has saved you. She belonged to him. Go into peace. Now, I don't know what her life was like from that point on. She may have gone on and, and married, and she might have had a, a very bad marriage. She may have lost some of her children, and she may have struggled throughout the rest of her life. And she, she had to face death at some point in her life. But she could live in peace because she had touched the Savior, made a difference in her outlook. Now, um, Jairus, in the meantime, is standing on one leg and then the other, hopping up and down, tugging at Jesus' sleeve. This woman's situation was not critical. She had lived for 12 years with this disorder. She could have lasted for a few more years. His situation was critical. And yet Jesus seemed to have completely forgotten about him. Because, you see, he was focused on this one individual who had, had this need. In the meantime, people came from Jairus' house, and uh, they told him the child had died. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, that is, speaking to the woman. This is going, off here, <clears throat> going on uh, off here to the side. So men came from the house of Jairus, the uh, synagogue ruler. Your daughter's dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Uh, there's a real note of finality in that announcement. He must have seen them coming. He saw their faces. He realized that, uh, that the child had died before they even made this announcement. Then they say to him, don't, you don't have to bother Jesus anymore. The child's dead. It's over. Some of you have had, uh, you've had an, the occasion to uh, see, see paramedics working on a, a drowning victim, a heart attack victim, and, and you see them work desperately to save that life and 
And uh, then finally they realize there's no life left and they back away from the body and they say it's, it's no use. He's gone. There's an awful finality in that statement. I, I can remember as a child the first large dead thing I ever saw. I think I was about four or five years old and our mule died. Uh, she got uh, stuck in the mud and, try, and trying to get out. She had a heart attack and died and just keeled over in the creek. And, and I remember sitting on the bank looking down at that enormous body with, uh, and, and thinking, she's gone. I, mean, I actually like that old mule. She's gone. And I think it's the first time in my life I ever faced the finality of death. I've had to face it many times since then, friends and family, and, and have conducted many funerals and, and have looked at the uh, dead body of, of my friends, my family members, and I have been struck again by what seems to be the finality of it. Death is, is irreversible. And that's what these people are thinking. Don't, don't bother the Lord anymore. It's too late. Leave the teacher alone. Your daughter is dead. Jesus ignored Verse 36, ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. If you don't hear another thing this morning, if, you, if that's the only thing you walk out of here with, I hope you walk out of here with that, that statement. That's the bottom line of both of these miracles. Don't be afraid. Just keep on trusting. He could say that in the face of sickness. He could say that in the face of healing. He could say that in the face of death. He says it to us today. Don't be afraid. Just keep on trusting. That's what Jesus said to the disciples when they were facing the prospect of his death and theirs. Don't let your heart be troubled. He said, this is the cure for heart trouble. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. It's just that simple. Sometimes very hard to do. But that's the bottom line of all of Christian life. Don't be afraid. Don't keep on fearing. Believe in me. Just keep trusting. Uh, Jairus had exhibit A of faith right in front of his eyes, this woman who'd been healed. And that was, I'm sure, a great encouragement, incentive to faith. So uh, they made their way back, uh, uh, made their way on to Jairus' house, which must have been in... uh, Capernaum, Jesus did not let anyone follow him. I'm reading verse 37. Did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. This was the inner circle. This is the first of several uh, instances when our, where our Lord took only these two, uh, these three, the two brothers, James and John and Peter, uh, into the inside. He did it again uh, on Mount Tabor at the Mount of Transfiguration and at uh, Gethsemane. As he was facing the cross, these were the three who seemed at this point to have the most open hearts, who were the most teachable, who seemed to understand the most. And uh, he permitted them to follow him. You see, Matthew wasn't in this crowd. He had to stay behind. He's he's reporting someone else's report. Uh, Luke uh, wasn't there. He, He had researched this story thoroughly from the disciples and others. Uh, but Peter was there. Peter was on the inside. Peter went with Jesus into the room, and he reported to Mark what had happened. And so we really have Peter's story here. Peter, James, and John, the brother of, of James, came into the house. When they came into the house of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion of people crying and wailing loudly. People were distressed. Death always 
has that effect upon us. Uh, it's tragic. The, the most appropriate response is sorrow. But uh, Jesus stops the commotion. He went in and said, why, why all this commotion and wailing? Why are you grieving? This child isn't dead. She's, uh, she's only asleep. And they laughed at him. And, and we would too. They, they had seen her little still cold body in the bed. Dr. Luke, in referring to this event, tells us later that her spirit came back into her. He's writing from a medical perspective. He understood that her spirit had fled. She was dead. That was a carcass lying on, on the bed. And uh, Jesus walks into the room and he says, she's not dead, she's, uh, she's asleep. And they laughed. Now, l- let me ask you, who knows more about death than, uh, than the Lord Jesus? Can we accept his, his view of death? Uh, the Apostle Paul says uh, exactly the same thing. He uses the same metaphor of, of sleeping. The, uh, the psalmist, David, in Psalm 17, uses exactly the, the same symbol. He's, he, he describes those that are in the world who get it all in this world, says they're satisfied in this life, but when I awake, I'll be satisfied with your presence. He sees death, and this is David writing from 1000 B.C., but you see, he, he understood the heart of God. He understood the concept of eternal life. He knew that he belonged to God eternally, that God was not only his God in this life, but in the next and so he could look at the world and he could say, they, they get it all in this life, but as for me, I'm satisfied when I awake with your face, your presence. Now, w- what a great way of looking at death. Do we really believe what Jesus said? You will not die. Oh, sure, your, your body will die, but you will not die. So he looks at the still cold form of this little girl lying on the bed, and he, and he says, this little girl isn't dead. She's only sleeping. What a beautiful picture to carry into death as we have to face it, to realize that we just go to sleep and that we wake up in, in the Lord's presence. What a fresh and wonderful way of looking at what most people consider to be the greatest tragedy in life. It's like going to bed at night. I don't know about you, but at the end of the day, I am wasted. I am ready to hit the sack. I crawl in that bed with a great deal of joy, pull the covers up, shut my eyes, and I am gone. I don't fear it. I love it. (laughs) Because I know a few hours later I'm going to wake up. And that's what our Lord wants us to understand. You will not die if you're in Jesus. You just go to sleep. And he walked over to the little girl. He put out the scoffers first because he won't, won't, doesn't respond to unbelief. He only responds to faith. He got the weepers and wailers out of the house. He took the child's father and mother. By the way, it struck me, I wonder why the father went to appeal to Jesus. I think maybe he thought, or maybe the mother thought, if she went, Jesus wouldn't come. Because Jairus was a very prominent man. He had a lot of clout. He, he, could, he could, his influence, he could bring his influence to bear on Jesus. And uh, this woman wrongly thought that perhaps she wouldn't have any influence on Jesus. But in any case, there was a mother. and He brought the child's father and mother and the 
three disciples who were with him, and they went in where the child was, and he took her by the hand, and he said to her, Talitha kumi. That's Aramaic. Uh, the, uh, the Jews didn't speak Hebrew in those days. They had lost the ability to speak Hebrew when they went into exile in Babylon. Aramaic is the language of Babylonia. They brought that back with them. That became the lingua franca of, of Palestine, as well as uh, Greek. Most people were bilingual in those days. But a little child would probably only speak Aramaic, and it was the, lang- it was the street language of, of Palestine. And so he says to this little girl, Talitha kumi. Talitha is the Aramaic word for little girl. It's a diminutive form of, of the word for girl. Little girl, get up. It's what you do with your children in the morning. You know, you go in there and you, you uh, give them a little shake, you know, or a little hug. And you say, okay, son, get up. It's what you do when people go to sleep. You wake them up. So Jesus woke her up. She got up. And uh, she'd been sick for a while, and uh, she had been dead for a while, and she was restored fully to health, and she was hungry. That's what happens to little children when they get up. They storm the kitchen. And so she went into the kitchen, started rummaging around looking for the peanut butter jar, and Jesus said, my goodness, feed that child. She needs to have something to eat. It's another note of sensitivity, concern, compassion on the... uh, on the part of our Lord. Uh, I want you to understand that this miracle was not for the sake of the woman or for the child. hope you understand that. We don't know what happened to this woman. There's no guarantee that she went through life uh, without incurring some other illness. She certainly did not incur this one again because Jesus said, go on and remain in a healed state. But life being what it is, and the world being what it is, and disease being what it is, she very likely contracted some other disease, and she certainly died at some point in her life. And her life may have been very hard, and we don't know what happened to this little girl. She, too, may have had an unhappy marriage, or she may have had children who died in infancy. That was a common occurrence in those days. The child mortality rate was very high in those days. And she had to face death all over again. So this, uh, you know, if you stop and think about it for a moment, this miracle was not for the woman's sake or for the, for the child's sake. It was for the sake of Peter and James and John and the mother and the father and, and us. And us. What do we learn? Well, it's interesting to me that Jesus said, don't tell anyone what happened. Verse 43, he gave strict orders not to let anyone know uh, about this. Why? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. One, uh, I don't think our Lord ever cared uh, for uh, display. I, I think he hates ostentatious display. His work is often done very quietly and does his best work in closets. As Jesus said, behind the scenes, I, uh, Elijah learned that that uh, God whispers to us in our time of need. But I think there's another reason. I think, I think he wanted this mother and father and Peter, James and John and us to think about this story. Think about it a lot in a long time. Uh, Stevenson said he, uh, someone asked him once where his poems came from. He said, I sit a long time on my eggs. And I think that's what we have to do with these stories. We have to think about them a lot, ponder them. It's one thing to know that 
that God controls the, the heavens and the earth. It's another thing to know that God has a heart like ours and that he understands. The second thing that I think we learn from this, this, these two miracles, this double miracle, is that he wants us to trust him. He doesn't promise that everyone that's sick will be healed immediately. He doesn't promise that everyone who dies will be raised in this life. He didn't do it then. He doesn't do that today. But someday, someday, he's going to set, set the whole world right. He's going to heal every sickness. He's going to raise the dead. He's going to bring health and healing and peace to this whole world. In the meantime, he gives us the resources to face whatever we have to, have to face. We can live in peace. We can go into peace as a result of being his, uh, his children. So uh, I think Jesus' word to us, Mark's word to us, my word to us, would simply be to not be afraid, but to believe in Jesus. Let me read something that G. Campbell Morgan said. G. Campbell Morgan is one of my heroes. Uh, there are two or three teachers that I read and, and have tried to follow. One is John R. W. Stott. The other is G. Campbell Morgan. When my father died, uh, I fell heir to his collection of G. Campbell Morgan books. I have every book that G. Campbell Morgan ever wrote. Now, my father spent the last 30 years of his life collecting from used bookstores and all over the world G. Campbell Morgan's works. And I now, it, it, it was really the grace of God because I've always loved this man, and now I have every book that he ever wrote. If I just had the time to sit down and read every book that he ever wrote, I'd be in hog heaven. But I want to read something that G. Campbell Morgan said. In this particular unveiling of Jesus, we have a revelation of his extreme sensitiveness. Ah, oh, the paucity of human words, he says, when we try to talk about Christ. I need some new language. Sensitivity is a beautiful word, but it's not rich enough to express the thought. In him, sensitiveness was responsiveness, quick, immediate, full, generous, magnificent. You see that in the way he responded to, uh, to Jairus, the way he responded to the woman. Then again, we have here a wonderful revelation of the understanding of Jesus. I think that's one of the most wonderful qualities in human love and friendship, understanding this. That's why he tarried to talk to the woman and help her. That's the meaning of, of the word daughter. So much was not said, and consequently, so much more was said. In other words, that term daughter is such a pregnant term. If you stop and think about it for a moment, it has so much meaning, so much significance. that out of all the, the world at that point, he, he centered on that one woman and called her his child. So much was not said, and consequently, so much more was said. Perhaps the most beautiful sacramental symbol of his understanding in all the narrative is its last touch. The dead child was lifted by his hand. She rose to life at the music of his voice. Then he commanded that they should give her something to eat. If we had invented this story, we wouldn't have added that. Even now we're a little afraid to believe it, but he is God. He knew that the little child waking back after the long unconscious slumber with the little body thrilling with new life was hungry. Give her something to eat. With a, tendered, uh, with a, with a touch gentle enough for a little maiden's dimpled hand and with a voice musical enough to bring the sweet spirit back from the far-off place, he did not forget that she wanted something to eat. Oh, the understanding of Jesus. Now we read that and, and we think, well, now there is another typical ivory tower theologian. 
Oh, yes, Jesus understands, but does he understand? Because I lost a child. My child died, not, not me, I'm talking for some of you. My child died, and I lost her forever. Or I incurred a sickness that I have uh, carried around in my body for 12 years or more, and the Lord did not touch my body and, and heal me. That's uh, typical of uh, the kind of writing that comes from sitting in offices and being out of, uh, in studies and being out of touch with, with the world. But let, let me tell you about G. Campbell Morgan. Or better yet, let me read to you from his memoirs. I can hardly speak of this matter without becoming personal and reminiscent. He's talking about the death of little children. I remember a time 40 years ago when my first lassie lay at the point of death, dying. I called for him then, and he came, and surely said to my troubled heart, Fear not, believe only. But he did not say, She shall be made whole. She was not made whole on the earthly plane. She passed away into the life beyond. He did not say to her, Talitha kumi, that is, little lamb, arise in this life. But in her case, but he did say to her, Talitha kumi, little lamb, arise. But in her case, that did not mean stay on the earthly level. It meant that he needed her and he took her to be with himself. She has been with him for all these years as we measure time here. And I have missed her every day. But his word, believe only, has been the strength of all these passing years. And that's what I would say to, her, uh, say to you. That that's the bottom line of this, of, this, of this double miracle. Don't be afraid. Just trust him. He's with us here now. The healing of his seamless dress is by our beds of pain. We touch him in life's throng and press, and we're made whole again. Let's pray. I think all of us, when it comes to faith, talk a very good line. We say we believe it, but uh, when we face into our own particular problems, it's uh, very easy for us to give way to fear and, and doubt, to believe that he that God really does not know, he doesn't understand, he doesn't care, he doesn't have compassion on us, not in my sorrow. That's, uh, that's unbelief. I have it, you have it, we need to confess it as sin. All he wants from us is, is just a little bit of faith. He, he tells us that he'll cause it to grow if we have a little bit of faith. We may not know what our Lord is going to do. We may not know how he's going to do it. But we can know that he's the source of all the power in the universe. He can heal. Or he can give us the resources that we need to to handle any of life's problems, no matter how dire or difficult they may be. Don't be afraid, just believe. Would you tell the Lord that that is the intent of your heart? Tell him you believe a little bit, or tell him that you want to believe, or tell him that you want to be made willing to believe.
He understands. He takes us on whatever terms in which we come as long as we trust Him. We may not understand everything that that we need to know about the Lord Jesus. We may be confused theologically. But if we come to Him and we trust Him, He'll cause our faith to grow. And He'll give us what we need to face into the, whatever situation you have to face this week. Lord, we confess our unbelief. We want you to change our hearts. We want to be taught how to believe. We want to look at stories like this and, 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 and believe that they actually happen and that these things did take place and this child did rise from the dead and this woman was healed and that you can do this. This is within your power, and one day you will do this. And in the meantime, Lord, we want to believe that you're, you're sufficient for our needs. Whatever we, have to, whatever we have to face, whatever we have to handle, whatever difficulty comes our way, whatever decisions we have to make, you give us grace to meet those needs. Lord, help our unbelief. We want to thank you for the fact that you know the circumstances of our life. You understand them thoroughly. You want to meet our needs. We want to come to you in faith and claim all that you are for all that we need. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.